I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to SALT Talks. As many of you know, I'm the chairman of SALT, a global thought leadership and networking forum encompassing finance, technology, and politics, as well as the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. I am channeling my John Darcy here, so bear with me. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. Just as we do at our global SALT events, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. And by the way, we really have a tremendous one today. I am very excited to welcome Kathy Wood to SALT Talks. Kathy registered ARK Investment Management uh, as an investment advisor with the Securities Exchange in January of 2014. With over 40 years of experience identifying and investing in innovation, Kathy founded ARK to focus solely on disruptive innovation while adding new dimensions to research through a open approach that cuts across sectors market capitalization and geographies, Kathy believes that ARC can identify large-scale investment opportunities in public markets resulting from technological innovations centered around DNA sequencing, robotics, artificial intelligence, energy storage, and blockchain technology. As CIO and portfolio manager, Kathy led the development of ARC's philosophy and investment approach and is ultimately She's responsible for the investment decisions. Prior to ARC, Kathy spent 12 years at Alliance Bernstein as CIO of Global Thematic Strategies, where she managed over $5 billion. Uh, Kathy and I both know that an overnight success takes about 25 years. Am I right? Kathy joined Alliance Capital from Tupelo Capital Management, a hedge fund she co-founded, which in 2000, managed approximately $800 million in global thematic strategies. Prior to her tenure at Tupelo, she worked for 18 years with Jenison Associates as chief economist, equity research analyst, portfolio manager, and director. She started her career in Los Angeles, California at the Capital Group as an assistant economist. And so we are super proud, frankly, Kathy, to have you on with us today. Hosting this SALT talk is Lisa Diaz, my former boss, and she's now president and chief executive officer of Prince Street Capital. And for anybody that worked at Goldman Sachs in the early 90s, she was your former boss too. And that includes you, Lloyd Blankfein, who I know listens to every one of these SALT talks. And Lisa Diaz is now, she's the chief executive of Prince Street Capital, a specialist emerging in the frontier of market hedge fund focused on uncovering the most innovative emerging markets for national champions within the e-commerce, healthcare, fintech, and infrastructure space. I probably read that terribly, Lisa, but let me tell you something. What I know about you is you are one of the great innovators and one of the great groundbreakers in our industry. So I'm super proud to have you lead this discussion with Kathy. And I'm going to put myself on mute, which is a rarity for me, Ms. Wood. I have to tell you that right now. Go ahead, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> Anthony, thank you. That was a very kind introduction. So, Kathy, to, to follow up on um, Anthony's comment, an overnight sensation. Um, I know you back from the 1980s, um, and I know the path was not 
um, straight upward trajectory or a J curve. So can you talk to me or give us a sense of what do you think was the breakout phenomenon? What were the pieces of the equation that came together that made you a household name that everyone knows about, especially let's be honest, you're a woman. You're probably the most famous woman investor, um, I think in, on the street right now. So what were the convergence of events that happened? Mm, I love the word convergence because uh, that's what we are really focused on, the convergence among uh, innovation platforms that are growing exponentially. There are five platforms, 14 technologies. Uh, and I think there are a couple of things that happened. First of all, we were filling uh, we were fulfilling an unmet need. What happened after the tech and telecom bust and then the 08, 09 meltdown is you had uh, really quantitative research take over and benchmark sensitivity increasing, uh, if not outright passive investing. Now, at the same time, the seeds that were planted during the tech and telecom bubble and before that actually, really over the 20 years starting uh, in 1980, the seeds uh, for the innovation platforms around which we have centered all of our research, they were planted back then. Uh, back then, there was too much capital chasing too few opportunities too soon. Why? The technologies weren't ready. Oracle and Cisco are not taking us into the new age. Uh, so the technologies weren't ready and the costs of them were way too high. Good example, DNA sequencing, 2003, only 18 years ago, it cost $2.7 billion and took 13 years of computing power to sequence the first whole human genome, just one person. Uh, today, it's about five, $600 and takes an hour or so of computing power. Think about that, that's 18 years. But it took that long for the cost to drop low enough, which is uh, the critical variable uh, in order to scale the technology. So that, I think uh, the fact that we saw an unmet need that uh, the market had gone passive effectively, even benchmark sensitivity to me uh, feels very passive. And uh, at the same time, innovation in the private markets uh, was being valued at multiples of what it was being valued in the public markets. Uh, and we knew investors did not own enough innovation in the public markets. And we also knew there wasn't enough research. And so we uh, started an open research ecosystem. We give our research away. We believe we're the first sharing economy company in the asset management space when it comes to research. Uh, and in the sharing economy, if you don't give, you don't get. We are sharing our research because we want to become a part of the communities that are doing the research and we get so much back from them. Uh, they will uh, tell us when we're making mistakes in our models because we share our models. Uh, and they will tell us when we've made a mistake, uh, a mistaken assumption that we don't even understand we've made. Uh, that's really important because in the world of exponential growth, if you make an incorrect assumption early on and you carry it on, carry it along too long, you'll make an exponential mistake potentially. Uh, so, so that's been really helpful. And I think the, the third thing was, is the gratitude that we're getting from individual investors who are reading our research and taking it seriously and investing according, accordingly. We, because we run active equity ETFs, we have to disclose our holdings at the end of every day. 
we go one step further. We publish our trades every day. Uh, and now we've got YouTube sites out there which talk about our trading every day. Uh, or they talk about the latest controversy uh, that, that uh, uh, ARK Invest uh, has, um, has attracted, shall we say, from the traditional financial world. And so I think we've gone a bit viral, you know, in a way that I never expected. Uh, we've gone a bit viral. And I think one of the reasons is our research is not just about investing. Our research is, is educating uh, individuals and businesses uh, uh, about how the world is going to change and how to get on the right side of change and stay there so that they can not only do that for themselves, but guide their children and their grandchildren. So I think this is much more than just investing. Uh, and, and I guess the technologies were right uh, for, uh, to enable us to do this. You know, it couldn't have been done 20 years ago. Uh, so I think everything came together. Well, it's an amazing phenomenon. So, so when you think about it, do you think innovation is an asset class? And if it's in fact an asset class, how big can it be and how invested do you think um, the market is currently? Well, we think uh, that if you mean the market institutions in particular, we think they are short innovation in a big way. Uh, we think individuals have uh, a much higher weight in innovation and are more correctly positioned, actually. Mm. Uh, yes. Uh, so innovation, um, is it an asset class? No. Uh, I think the, 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 before crypto, this is the new asset class, crypto, the crypto asset uh, world. Uh, and before that, equities in uh, the 1600s. So those are asset classes. Uh, this is a categorization, and inter interestingly, uh, we can look at what happened with emerging markets. Uh, MSCI, how did what, what's its claim to fame? One of its biggest is creating the category of investing called emerging markets, because when I was at Capital Group, and Capital was a global investment firm at the time, way ahead of its time, uh, I, I remember we were uh, investing in Brazil and Malaysia. We were doing country by country, right? And MSCI basically said, well, wait a minute. Each of these countries has uh, idiosyncratic risks. Why don't we construct this category to lower that risk and increase the return of investors' portfolios um, as they allocate to emerging markets, a new a new category. Uh, MSCI has just done that with innovation and they did it uh, with keywords from us. Uh, uh, they um, approached us and asked, would we be willing to share the keywords we associate with innovation? So we considered that high praise. We were uh, trying to attract the institutional world to in innovation, but it was a no-go because there was no benchmark. Now, I just told you how much I hate benchmarks, but <laughs> there was no benchmark. Uh, so uh, against everyone's expectations, we agreed to do this with uh, MSCI. And they have created some very thoughtful indices. They've taken our keywords and used artificial intelligence to scrape the world. And whatever they do, the convergences they use are different from ours. 
I've been surprised at uh, how low the overlap is, actually. They have 400 to 500 stock portfolios. Ours are 40 to 50 stocks, so concentrated, rifle shot. They've got more of the scatter shot. Uh, and, uh, and so I think they're doing a service to the world, and they're doing for innovation what they did for emerging markets, because uh, the five major platforms, as Anthony mentioned, DNA sequencing, robotics, energy storage, artificial intelligence, blockchain te technology, uh, those, uh, they do not all behave the same way. Uh, I can tell you our autonomous robotics uh, and um, autonomous technology and robotics fund, we just renamed it. Uh, it behaves very differently from our genomics revolution. But the interesting thing is they are both, uh, they, they, they're not sector funds. They might sound like it, but they're not. In fact, even our genomics revolution fund cuts across healthcare, of course, that's the largest category, but the, the, uh, one of the most important applications of genomics is in agriculture, crops, livestock, aquaculture. Uh, you know, that's, that's probably in terms of percent impact going to be where the biggest impact is uh, in the uh, ag space. So uh, what we've done at ARC is, um, this is to anticipate one of your questions, is we have turned our uh, research uh, department upside down relative to traditional asset management. Our analysts are specialists in technologies that are going to cut across sectors. Mm -hmm. They are not specialists in sectors or subsectors. Uh, all of our analysts are very comfortable with technology, technologies permeating every sector. I think analysts focused on healthcare and industrials and utilities are all going to be surprised at how profoundly technology is going to impact their sectors. And they're not comfortable with technology. So we set it up where each of our analysts is very comfortable with technology. So traditional um, research is siloed, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what we're sort of talking about. So you're looking to weave themes across various um, asset groups. So. So I suspect the Graham and Dodd investing team would have said, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and they would have discounted very voraciously the likes of names that we were talking about, Tesla, Teladoc, Zoom, Spotify. And what, what do you say back to them? What, what, what are their arguments and have they started to fold? And is there a pickup in some of that institutional um, investor base that's underinvested in innovation as defined by ARC Asset Management? We are seeing more interest. Uh, uh, it's, it's evolved much slowly than I expected, uh, given how low the correlation of returns are in our innovation strategies relative to traditional growth strategies and inverse correlation relative to, to value, of course. Uh, and so I've been surprised because I thought institutional investors were looking uh, for those low correlations. In fact, they have embra they're embracing Bitcoin faster than they're embracing our strategy, which is even more ironic <laughs> when you think about it. Uh, so crazy, yes, and many, uh, many commentators out there actually call me Crazy Kathy. Uh, and, and, and they still do, uh, and they will continue to do so. And I love it. And the reason I love it is there's a lot of disbelief in what we're doing. The stocks we own, if you are 
uh, using uh, a valuation based on this year or next year, uh, and that's your primary screen uh, uh, in terms of either introducing stocks to a portfolio or sizing them, um, you, you'd never ever buy our portfolios or most of the stocks in our portfolios. Um, and so most people don't understand that we have a five-year time horizon. Uh, exponential growth in the early days looks very much like linear growth, uh, especially when you're working from a very low base. And so most of the industry is uh, uh, linear in its thinking, uh, linear growth that is. Uh, we're focused only on exponential growth. If you give us five years, the difference between linear and exponential is shocking. Let me give you an example. Uh, last year, there were 2.2 million electric vehicles sold around the world, including China, the largest market. We believe that number is going to 40 million in five years. Now that's almost a 20 fold increase. Most people do not believe that's possible. And the primary reason they believe that is it, they've never seen it happen. Uh, and it, when they thought it was happening, tech and telecom bubble, it ended in tears, which is exactly mm -hmm. what they expect uh, uh, our portfolios to do. You have to go back to the early 1900s to see this kind of exponential growth and take the auto sector. That's where we saw exponential growth caused by technologically enabled innovation. Uh, so no one is expecting 40 million. Haircut that by half. We are now seeing some people saying, eh, it might get there, could get there, but nothing like 40. Um, and in the early days in 2014, the numbers that traditional forecasters were using for EVs in the early 20s were like 250,000. We just did 2.2 mil million. Uh, so I think if you give us a five-year time horizon and the multiples we attach to uh, companies at year five are actually uh, m more mature multiples, the va their valuations are going to come down dramatically, uh, but their growth uh, rates in terms of earnings are going to be ex exponential. And I think it's that concept of exponential. If you think about our world, what if you think about dividend discount models, you talk about Graham and Dodd, what are you doing? Oh, okay, if you have this exceptional growth, you have it for two or three years, and then you decay immediately to, uh, to GDP growth, which by the way, we think is going to be very low, two to 3% until some of these innovations are... Um, uh, uh, get to a level where they start moving the GDP needle. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, the multiples we use are really more mature multiples than we think we, we will actually see at that time, but we want to be conservative. Uh, and so people say with our Tesla, Tesla is now at a, a little bit below $700. Our bear case for it in five years, meaning no autonomous, is $1,500. So it meets our minimum hurdle rate of return, which is 15% at a compound annual rate. And I know during this correction, we've been in a serious correction for innovation for the last six weeks to two months. Um, and uh, I, think our, I think we're down 30 some odd percent uh, from peak to, we were down 30 uh, some odd percent uh, peak to trough. 
what happened because of that correction, if we, if we add up all of our price targets and rates of returns and all that uh, weighted by uh, position in the portfolio, um, at the peak, our price target suggested we would have a 15% compound annual rate of return. We're really not comfortable that that was our, uh, where we are. In other words, we had had a, a, a streak of very good performance, outperformance. Um, after the correction, now the compound annual rate of return that we see is 25%. So instead of delivering a double over five years, this is not a promise, by the way, our compliance department uh, uh, would want me to add that quickly. Uh, instead of a, a double over uh, five years, we think we have a triple. And our confidence in all of these platforms and technologies is only growing. And, and our confidence in Tesla's outlook is only growing. So it's safe to say you think this is an excellent buying opportunity, particularly for those institutions who have um, been non-believers in the innovation story. Yeah, we, we think they're very short innovation. And the problem with that uh, is that disruptive innovation creates cr creative destruction. Mm -hmm. We think more than half of the S&P 500 is in harm's way of being thoroughly disrupted, disintermediated. Uh, and so as a, if for no other reason, they need a hedge. It's called innovation. <laughs> I love it. So ARC Asset Method is offering innovation as a hedge. Well, that's how we, oh, well, we, you know, we got the idea from a, a value investor who called us up. And believe me, we were so happy to get calls at that time, called us up. We had all the time in the world for him. And he said, look, I'd never buy one stock in your portfolio. I, I, I don't even know how you can buy them, but I know my biggest risk is a value trap and uh, meaning cheap for a reason, including potentially going out of business. So I'm going to hold my nose and I'm going to put a little bit of innovation in my portfolio. This was a value investor. Wow. That's a super interesting idea. So, so just switching gears and uh, at the risk of talking my own book. So do you think innovation is a US centric or a developed market phenomenon? Or do you think innovation has gone global and there are opportunities that are unappreciated in the rest of the world? I'll talk your book, I think. Okay. <laughs> I think uh, that their uh, innovation is global. And in fact, there is a, a race on, and it's importantly featuring China and the US, China influencing the rest of Asia, of course. Uh, and I think it's great for innovation. I think it's going to happen. These platforms are going to happen faster uh, than they otherwise would if, if this were just a US uh, phenomenon. So I know you're much more involved in Asia, emerging markets. Uh, and we think they're ripe with opportunities uh, as well. Fantastic. So do you have any favorite names in the emerging markets world that you can share with us? Uh, well, in terms of, uh, let's see, I know one stock we have in common, that's uh, Pinon Healthcare. Yes. Uh, so, you know, the reason China is growing so quickly and this was true with digital wallets like WeChat Pay and uh, uh, Alipay, is it, 
it didn't have the infrastructure to begin with. Uh, uh, in the US, we were saying, you know, it, it was good enough, lots of inertia. We were very loyal to our banks. I've been with my bank for more than 20 years. So banks have paid up to acquire customers. Uh, when you've got a viral uh, uh, technology like WeChat is, and you incorporate a payments ecosystem in it, it goes viral pretty quickly. And it is so much better than what they have uh, that even those in their 70s and 80s, merchants in rural areas want to use it. They want to avoid uh, counterfeit cash, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at Ping On Health, uh, same thing. The, 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 this is a, a digital approach to healthcare in China, huge unmet need, again, reaching into uh, rural, the rural parts of the country. Uh, Ping'an itself, I, I don't know what the number is now, but the last time I heard the number, Ping'an, the insurance company, had a sales force of more than a million people. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is the kind of scale you need to think about as you're trying. Uh, and so there are a lot of evangelists for Ping'an healthcare out there as well. Uh, so we love that. We, we think uh, China in all of our platforms is a great competitor. So if you look at DNA, um, uh, DNA sequencing, um, uh, uh, BGI uh, is a, a great competitor. Uh, if, you, if you look at robotics, it's probably going to commoditize in China. So we don't have any uh, plays there. Uh, if you look at energy storage, well, of course, You've got Tesla in uh, in China, so that's that's good. You've got um, you've got an ecosystem uh, building around uh, China. We know that Neo, uh, we don't own it, but uh, we think that government decree they want uh, a local champion. We don't know if it's going to be Neo or Xpeng, which is patterning itself after Tesla, or if it will be Tesla itself. I doubt that. I doubt that because China wants a local winner. Uh, but we, we think uh, they're all over uh, that market. Artificial intelligence, if you look at the league tables uh, in uh, chip technology, a surprising number of Chinese companies, uh, SenseTime and others. Uh, and I think the reason for this is China's um, uh, need uh, for sur surveillance. The government wants uh, surveillance over yes. over its population even more so. So I think AI information data is, is um, uh, you know they've been doing this for a long time. And then finally, uh, blockchain uh, technology. We know they're go that China is going to have its own digital currency, the the digital yuan. And it's interesting to see how they're evolving that. You know, it's programmable. So if they want to prevent uh, uh, transactions. They'll be able to do that. Uh, so it's it's really, really interesting how quickly China is embracing these technologies and running with them. I think uh, on that score, they want the digital yuan to become the reserve currency of Asia. So lots going on. Lots going on. So so we would be remiss. So turning to other asset class, Bitcoin. So mm -hmm. Bitcoin, do you think, or what's your sort of vision for Bitcoin? Is it going to become a reserve currency? Is it scarcity value like real estate? Um, it started the purview of every college student, including my own, um, knew about Bitcoin before their parents did. So what's your kind of vision going at five years and 10 years for Bitcoin as an asset class and a value? 
we don't have to go out five or 10 years, it's here. Um, it, we believe, uh, we, we wrote a, a white paper in 2016 called Bitcoin ringing the bell for a new asset class. Uh, and so, yes, we believe it's here. We believe that Bitcoin is the reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem. Mm -hmm. We also believe that uh, there will be very few huge winners in the crypto space. We think the cryptocurrencies are going to be the huge winners. So this is really flipping the internet on its head in terms of how it evolved. And the internet evolved without a payments infrastructure. And the reason for that is nobody thought commerce would evolve on it. This was for intelligence and academia and consumers in the United States weren't even allowed to use the internet legally until 1991, a Telecommunications Act. Um, uh, so uh, we believe that uh, the uh, Bitcoin is and crypto world, the value accrual, where we will see most of the value accrue is to the cryptocurrencies themselves. This is not what happened in the internet. In the internet, the protocols, so Bitcoin's blockchain is one protocol, Ethereum another, uh, the protocols, uh, basically just became standards, right? Technology standards upon which these very valuable applications were built, Facebook, Amazon, and so forth. The value accrued to the applications. This time we think the value will accrue to the protocols themselves and the currencies as measured by their currencies. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we believe that Bitcoin is already the reserve currency of the crypto asset ecosystem. Uh, and, and we can see that uh, in that many crypto assets, most I would say, are, are priced in terms of Bitcoin. So that's the unit of account. The currencies uh, are very important. We think there will be maybe four or five that are, that are going to accrue the most value. Now, DeFi, watching it evolve, I mean, we're in the Wild West, decentralized finance. It's very exciting. Uh, and uh, so that's probably why Ether is going to be another one. Um, we do have uh, a fund right now only with two currencies in it. Uh, this is a private fund uh, and that's Bitcoin and Ether, but we're scouring the scene. Some of the custody arrangements uh, associated with others like Decred um, aren't quite there yet. Uh, so, you know, again, we're, we're picking our, our spots carefully. Um, and so, yes, we think it's an asset class. We think Bitcoin itself uh, will, uh, I was quoted in some paper, I never said this, but uh, someone did some homework and added uh, what I was saying up and said, uh, you know, ARK thinks this is a $10 trillion opportunity when it came to Bitcoin. And I said, I never said that, but I, I did actually say it uh, with the building blocks. We think institutional, could be, um, could institutional going to say five or 6% of institutional portfolios, again, very low correlation. Um, and that's sort of where real estate and emerging markets went. Uh, mm -hmm. That would add $500,000 uh, to Bitcoin's price. So right there, uh, that's a, a nearly a tenfold increase. If you look at uh, playing the role of cash, on the balance sheet, which is we did not incorporate this into our institutional white paper because we didn't expect it to be honest. Uh, but now we see Square and Tesla and MicroStrategy 
they have diversified some in the case of Square and uh, Tesla, it's five and 8% respectively. Uh, MicroStrategy, it's 100% of their cash in Bitcoin. Um, so if you, if, you, if you were to expect uh, uh, 1% uh, if corporations did that, I think this is just a US calculation too, that would be a 40,000 increase uh, in Bitcoin. Uh, if it's 10%, closer to where Tesla is, uh, that would be a $400,000 increase in the price. So again, uh, another eightfold increase. So, and those are just two use cases. I mean, the biggest use case is an insurance policy for anyone in the world, uh, you know, to protect against confiscation of wealth. And part of that, it could be inflation with unhinged monetary policies. I think that's a much more of a risk in emerging markets. And so, I think we'll see a lot of insurance policies being taken out in the form of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, I, I often reflect that uh, the Saudi princes uh, probably wished that they had uh, uh, allocated some of their wealth to Bitcoin because they certainly didn't expect their own cousin to confiscate it. But that happens all over the world in ways that we don't even understand. We have, we have, uh, and so I think that insurance policy could be the biggest use case. So it would be replacing gold. Plus there's no carrying and holding costs. Exactly. exactly. Which is a huge win. It's a so, huge. so, so to pivoting, North, very for North, you've uh, recently launched a space ETF. Mm -hmm. So I'm a star Wars um, fan from way, way back. Tell mm -hmm. us more about space and the opportunity and how are you going to invest in it? Right. Uh, and it's a very exciting opportunity. The reason, again, I'll go back to the technologies are ready and the costs have come down low enough. Uh, SpaceX has been uh, a game changer here. Reusable rockets. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think Elon was doing it so that he could get to Mars. Uh, <laughs> but from our point of view as uh, innovation investors, the, the declining costs by reusing a rocket, I think uh, the Falcon 9 is up to nine times, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Think about the dropping costs that that represents. The costs of satellite technology are coming down dramatically as well. Uh, the cost to launch a rocket coming down. Antenna, probably the biggest gating factor, those costs haven't come down as much as we like, but they are coming down and, and, and will come down faster uh, the more these satellites are launched. So uh, these are all volume-driven cost lines, right? And, and something I'd like to explain here is Wright's Law. Wright's Law is a relative of Moore's Law. Moore's Law is a function of time. Wright's Law, a function of units. Mm -hmm. And Wright's Law says, Theodore Wright, from the early days of airplane manufacturing, uh, observed that for every cumulative doubling in the number of airplanes produced, cost declined uh, at, back then a 10% rate. Um, the technologies that we're seeing today, though that, that number that for every cumulative doubling, what's the cost decline? In DNA sequencing, it's 40%, right? Think about that. Uh, and we can even decipher between short read sequencing, that's 40%, long read sequencing is 25%. Uh, industrial robots, collaborative robots, that's 28%. Artificial intelligence costs are dropping 37%. The cost to train uh, in using artificial intelligence, those costs are dropping 37% per year. That's not even a cumulative uh, 
doubling uh, calculation. So it helps you understand why these technologies are going to take off so quickly. They're going to unleash waves of demand, the more and more costs decline. Space is the convergence of many of the 14 technologies involved in our uh, five platforms. So certainly robots, uh, energy storage, 3D printing, huge, huge use case. Aerospace is the killer app for three, 3D printing. Um, artificial intelligence. In order to get those two rockets to be reusable and to land at the same time uh, without blowing up, uh, that was an artificial intelligence exercise. And if you have watched what happened, uh, fail, 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 fa failed every time. And then there was a success. The machine had trained itself. Success, success. I think they've had only one failure recently. Yeah. Uh, so all of these technologies are coming together. Now, I think when people look at our portfolios, they're kind of disappointed, actually, because they're not seeing space exploration or Mars or what have you. Uh, they're seeing more mundane companies to some extent, some very exciting ones in another sense. Uh, but we think the two biggest use cases uh, near term and within the next five years are going to be mobile connectivity. So the 3 billion people who are effectively in the dark, meaning no broadband, uh -huh. they will get broadband. And so that's a, an important use case. It's worth $40 billion per year, we believe in revenues. Uh, and 10 billion of those uh, are going to be in the US, believe it or not, because 40 wow. million people in the United States, more than 10% of our population have no broadband. Think about it. That's horrible. The bigger, the bigger use case or the bigger application we think within the next five years is going to be hypersonic flight. And um, so that means we'll be able to fly from Manhattan to mm -hmm. Japan mm -hmm. in two to three hours, not yes. 12 to 14 hours. Uh, and we think that market is going to scale to $270 billion revenue opportunity per year over yeah. the next five to 10 years. That's a huge market. Uh, and, uh, and as these costs continue to go down, the odds of getting to Mars go up. So yeah, yeah we're, we're pretty excited. I, you and I both went to Australia. Wouldn't it be nice to get to Australia in two hours? Oh my gosh. We yeah. could have lunch. It would be great. It would be great. <laughs> that would be great. So, so finally, you know, this all sounds rosy and fantastic, but what keeps you up at night? Like, what do you worry about? What could derail the market, innovation? You know, what, 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 what causes you concern or worry? Well, I, I will say uh, innovation is not the worry. In fact, the coronavirus unleashed waves of innovation because, again, uh, innovation, is, the cost declines are dependent on volume growth. Innovation solves problems. The coronavirus presented us with a lot of problems. And so all of our platforms were turbocharged uh, in terms of unit growth. Uh, so we think there's no going back. Sure, you have your stay-at-home stocks that were rewarded. But if you look at even them, take Zoom. It's been cut in half since last October, I think. Uh, so this uh, exodus from stay-at-home has already happened for those of you who are are playing it. Maybe there's a bit more to go. I have no idea. 
Um, what keeps me up is our fiscal policies in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, remember what I mentioned before, the competition uh, in the innovation space. Uh, China is, is uh, basically willing innovation into, like they're doing everything yes. they can, policymakers, mm -hmm. to encourage innovation there. And I fear that our policymakers are going to discourage innovation in the US. So what this will mean, and I'm glad we're rerun global portfolios, that more of the innovation, sources of innovation, uh, are going to come from the rest of the world, probably Asia. We just hired an Asian innovation analyst uh, mm -hmm. for this reason, and we're going to hire another one uh, because we think the U.S. risks uh, losing the plot. Um, uh, and personally, I think the best way to grow out, to get out of our deficits is to grow out of them. Raising taxes is going to discourage activity and discourage growth. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I would implore, Anthony, I would implore any, anyone you have in Washington, mm -hmm. I would just implore them to think about this. We're going to hurt our competitive positioning in the world. Yes. And innovation is going to accrue to the countries that encourage it. Uh, raising taxes, raising the capital gains tax rate, raising the estate tax rate, you know, tax rates of any kind is going to discourage uh, innovation. So that that worries me. It truly does. I am not worried about inflation, not in this country. In fact, I think the opposite is um, is the risk. Uh, there are uh, we think we're in a deflationary world for two reasons. One's good, one's really bad. The good deflation is coming from innovation. Remember, I said costs coming down, unit exploding. That's very good. The bad deflation is uh, going to occur because companies paid too much attention to short-term short oriented shareholders who after the tech and telecom bust and 0809 wanted their profits and they wanted them now. They mm -hmm. wanted them you know, on, on a regular schedule. They wanted a constant diet, right? Okay, so what did companies do to satisfy those investors? They leveraged up their balance sheets mm -hmm. to buy back shares, one way to get earnings up, and pay dividends. What they did not do enough, and GE and IBM are poster children of this, they did not invest enough in innovation that is going to disintermediate and disrupt mm -hmm. that already is. And so what will happen to those companies is that in order to service their debt, as they are going out of business anyway, uh, they will have to cut prices uh, and they'll probably uh, lose money, bring cash in, lose you know, reported earnings will go down. Uh, that's bad deflation. So yeah. I'm really not worried about inflation. And in fact, in the world we see deflation has, uh, well, it has the opposite effect of inflation. In the 70s, which is when I started in the business, so I, I remember these debates, um, what had happened that analysts didn't, I mean, economists didn't expect, uh, including Milton Friedman, the monetarist himself, was uh, while money supply seemed to be growing at a consistent rate, the velocity of money was picking mm -hmm. up. 
and the velocity of money was picking up, which means the rate at which the money turns over per year. Uh, it was picking up because uh, people, investors and individuals were bu buying, whether it, they were buying tangible assets, right? Uh, and they were trying to get out of their fiat currency, which was depreciating uh, uh, as fast as possible. So they'd buy now before prices and interest rates go up mm -hmm. or buy tangible assets to uh, protect against inflation. The opposite will happen with, uh, with deflationary forces, the two deflationary forces I, I mentioned. Um, if you think prices are going down, then at the margin, you'll wait to buy until they do. Now, interest rates are already down low enough, but pricing going down is, um, is going to stall some purchases uh, mm -hmm. over time. We think the early adopters are going to be there and that these uh, cost declines are going to happen because of them, uh, but uh, not everyone's an early adopter. So uh, it's going to be a really interesting environment. It's going to be, it's going to be the flip side, I think, of the 70s. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, so when you look back, you know, so we'll go five, five years ahead, what will have been the, the underappreciated innovation that you think um, that's going to surprise on the upside, not to you, but the general marketplace? What is the most un, um, unappreciated of your, of your innovation themes? Uh, the cures for disease that we're going to mm -hmm. see. Yes. And the prevention of, uh, deaths we by our calc, uh, calculations research if you take the 35 most common cancers mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the world today uh, and you create uh, tests mm -hmm. that are like blood tests mm -hmm. liquid biopsies they're called yes. uh, you'll be able to identify cancer in stage one mm -hmm. now we do think that the convergence between and among DNA sequencing, artificial intelligence, and gene editing and other uh, gene therapies and technologies. The, the combination of those, uh, the convergence, uh, we think is, um, is, is going to save 66,000 uh, uh, patients who develop cancer um, uh, from death because mm -hmm. they'll, be, they'll catch it in stage one. Yeah. We think artificial intelligence mm -hmm. is going to teach us that there's a setup that the body goes through uh, before cancer triggers. Mm -hmm. And we'll probably find out about that, those precursors ahead of time and mm -hmm. head them off at the pass. So that's one thing. I think, in, in the, and that's for sort of the general population. You know, and, and as we've been growing up, I think all of us have, watched friends and family members die of cancer. Yes. And it, it is the scourge of our age. And so I think we will find uh, a cure for cancer or, or at, um, at the minimum, uh, we'll have the ability to identify cancer in stage one. The other, the, for the investor's surprise, and I think investors will be surprised at how provocative that's going to be in terms of the values uh, created out there. But in terms of the average investor out there, I think that there are companies in the biotech space, especially pharma biotech, not all of them careful, you know, there's a minefield out there who are embracing these technologies. Mm -hmm. And because they are, we think that clinical trials, the, the time 
to um, uh, the time a, a clinical trial takes is going to drop by at least 25%. Mm-hmm. And the failure rates are going to drop by 25%. And so we're going back into the golden age of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 80s, the 80s, we saw the, the golden age, monoclonal antibodies, Genentech, mm-hmm. a new, a, the new biotech companies. Uh, this this wave and and we got returns on R and D investing up to twenty to thirty percent in that mm-hmm. golden age. Today, those returns on average are seven percent because of generics and uh, a paucity of innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of buying back shares and mm-hmm. satisfying short term oriented shareholders. Uh, that has changed, and it's changed um, in the last four years. So that mm-hmm. we think there are going to be some big surprises coming out of the companies that have embraced these technologies, mm-hmm. and we think the returns will go even higher than mm-hmm. they were in the '80s. You know, it's t- to say clinical trials will take uh, uh, 25% um, uh, uh, less time and mm-hmm. result in 25% fewer failures. Mm-hmm. Those are huge numbers in that world. Mm-hmm. Huge, huge, huge. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, following up on China, I don't, you probably know these statistics, but in the U.S., 70% of cancer patients have a five-year survival rate. In China, it's 40%. Yeah. So, the, so there's about a million and a half people who are dying every year who with preventive medicine more um, being able to catch it early would be able to survive. And that's been one of the focus of the Chinese, as you, you mentioned, centralized government to improve health and wellness in China. And this ability to diagnose cancer early is a game changer. Because as you know, if you, you diagnose cancer at, at, at stage one versus stage four, I mean, there's two dramatic impacts. You know, the survival rate goes off, you know, uh, is exponentially positive, but also the cost of treating the patient is much lower. So it's a virtuous cycle. Yes. Uh, so um, on that note, I think um, our friend Anthony wanted to uh, add in some other questions. And, you know, Anthony always has to have the last word, right? <laughs> well, not in this case. There's no question about that. I, it would be foolish of me to have the last word with the two of you, but no, I, I, I don't, I don't have many questions, Kathy. I just have one, one big question and I hear you loud and clear on taxation, by the way, uh, but they're not going to listen to me or you. I mean, they, 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 they've decided long ago that they want to detach themselves from the business community and from reality. And so whether it's Mitch McConnell saying, stay out of politics, if you're an executive, I mean, who is he to say that, or you're the Biden administration, uh, wanting to make the tax system less competitive with the world, uh, but yet continue to spend money that we don't have. I mean, you know, look, that's that's the world that we live in. But I, I guess, I guess, what I wanted to ask you is about the future, because I know that you see from your writings a world of abundance. You see technological innovation and technological transformation, and one of the worries that I have is the distribution of it. Uh, I, I'm worried that it's leaning too close to the haves versus the have-nots in society. And one of the fears that I have is that if we don't use free market forces to make it fairer, uh, then you'll have some type of imposition by the government. As you and I both know, that will make things way worse uh, mm-hmm. because it'll be disruptive to market forces. So uh, obviously, we're both 
great advocates for capitalism and for the free market. What could you say to people about the abundance ahead and how we can spread it out to make it more fair, but to make it market-based? Well, I, I, innovation is about abundance, right? And and getting costs down. So I just, uh, I think uh, we learned from the smartphone, right? How we've, we were able to change uh, uh, the world, bringing more access to more people, access to innovation, I mean, information alone, and financial services now. So uh, I think innovation in terms of getting costs down uh, is the solution to that problem. It is, because the lower the cost, I'll give you an example. Uh, we believe that uh, autonomous taxi networks uh, are going to evolve uh, much sooner than most people think. And according to our analysis, uh, the cost to, to, uh, of transportation per mile uh, for a person will drop all in, this is all in. So in our personal car, it costs roughly 70 cents per mile. And by the way, if you inflation adjust that, it has, it has cost 70 cents per mile since the first cars rolled off the assembly line, right? So 70 cents. We are going to ha have a discontinuous uh, shift down in that cost to 25 cents or less. Think about all the people who are taking uh, buses and they're going to be able to hop into a robo taxi. Uh, so I think that's a really good example. Think about that, the uh, increase in purchasing power that that is going, purchasing power uh, associated with transportation, which is a huge problem, a, a huge sure. source of friction uh, in, in the lower income world. So uh, innovation's always about uh, cutting costs uh, and, 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 um, and, and enabling more access to, to, to uh, better, cheaper, faster, more productive, more creative. So I think that's a solution to the problem, not a part of the problem. Now, in terms of what you may be saying, uh, uh, historically, the, the big innovations that um, uh, have, uh, have generated outsized returns, those have taken place in the private market. Uh, mm -hmm. We founded ARC to democratize to democratize access to these ideas. And I'm so gratified. Many people I, I know think there are a lot of problems with SPACs and there are some problems, of course, uh, but SPACs are enabling us to do that, enabling us to be able to share these opportunities with individual investors. And you know, the gratitude we get, as I, I mentioned before, is mind blowing, you know, the gratitude, you've changed my life or what have you, or I've now changed my career. So it's either investing or education. So we're trying to become a part of the movement to, to uh, you know, include uh, access to opportunities for everyone. So I understand what you're saying. Um, uh, we're trying to be a solution to that problem. Uh, and I think our technologies are as well. Well, this Listen, I think it's very well said. I don't have anything much more to add. I don't, I don't know if Lisa does, but Kathy, I really appreciate you joining us on Salt Talks. I hope we can get you to our live events someday when we're all vaccinated. We have an event planned in New York City at the Javits Center in September, uh, which I think will be a, a fun, well-attended event. Uh, you may know this. I've recently signed on as a contributor to CNBC. 
Yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah so I'm, you're, you're stuck with me, Kathy. You're not going to be able to get rid of me. I'm sort love of like, it. sort of like toe fungus. Once I'm in your life, <laughs> ask Lisa Diaz. Once I'm in your life, it's like impossible for me to get out of it. So, but in all seriousness, I want to, I want to congratulate you on your success and your uh, spirit of enterprise, your innovation, the entrepreneurship, the breakthroughs that you've made. Um, and uh, <clears throat> frankly, I'm proud to know you. So I just want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you again. Okay. So this in- concludes our Saw Talks. I am not John Darcy, so I'm not going to use the usual exiting uh, verbiage that John Darcy uses. Uh, but I want to thank Lisa Diaz as our guest interviewer and Kathy Wood, Uh, for a sensational Salt Talk presentation. Uh, Please log on to salt.org backslash talks uh, to catch this and many of the other uh, talks in our Salt Talk series. Guys, thank you very much again. Thanks again.